Good morning. Um, I hope you all had a great holiday season. I'm, uh, <clears throat> I had a great one, so I'll just let you know I had a blast with my wife, and uh, two of my kids showed up, and um, we went and saw four of the five national parks in Utah, and it was, uh, it was, it was, it was a blast. Um, I understand there's this football game uh, coming up about noon. I should be finished about one o'clock. Um, <clears throat> uh, I just feel like I need to take my time this morning. <laughs> um, while we were singing that, that song... That song is, uh, is like one of my favorite, but I can't sing it without crying. Um, and in the middle of it, I felt like uh, God was saying, you need to share your testimony. I don't do that very often. And it's not gonna be up here on the screen, but I'd like to just share with you for the next few minutes something about my life and the way, uh, excuse me, the way the Father rescued me. Um, I'll share this one in a couple of weeks. We'll start over again. But um, uh, most of you know I was raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and we went to a church called Peachtree Christian Church. My father was a deacon there. I ended up being sort of, they had a young people's church, and I ended up being a deacon in the young people's church. And um, <clears throat> when I was about eight or ten years old, uh, I went to a camp in North Carolina called Mondamon, Camp Mondamon. And um, <clears throat> while I was there, I was out sailing. I, le I, I learned to sail there, and I absolutely loved sailing. And so I was out sailing, and um, one day this huge cloud mass was up in the, up in the sky, and there was this face in it with a long beard. And I felt like it was God. I mean, I just, I'm an eight or 10 year old kid. And all of a sudden this thing is speaking to me and it says, I've called you to be a preacher. And I said, okay, I don't know what that means, but yep. So I went <clears throat> back and um, told my father this. And he went, okay, sure, whatever you think. <laughs> you know, sort of blew it off. And I set it aside. Um, Fast forward, uh, when I was 13, um, my, my parents used to go over every Sunday to my, um, my mother's brother's house and his wife and my two cousins. We would either go there or they would come to our house and I picked up that something was not right. There was something going on and it, it began to sort of undo me. Um, one day my mother went storming out of the house and she was crying profusely and I didn't know exactly what was going on so the um the summer of my 13th year my dad took me out in a boat in a lake uh, in Alabama we still have the lake house um took me out in a boat and he says your mom and I are having problems and uh you need to know that things aren't really good right now and I'm not sure what, what's going to happen and uh, you know basically pushed it off on her and said it was her fault 
So um, I went home, and as a cantankerous 13-year-old, um, in front of a drugstore, I remember all these things, it's so weird, but um, Winter and Roberts Drugstore in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, off Paces Ferry Road, I um, confronted my mom. I was sitting in the back seat, she was sitting in the front seat, and I got on her, are you gonna just you know, mess up our family? What are you doing? And then she began to tell me what was happening. My father was getting involved with my uh, mother's brother's husband, uh, wife. And so all of a sudden my world as a 13-year-old began to fall apart. And I, <clears throat> I didn't know what was right and wrong for a while. I didn't understand what was happening with my parents. So when I was 15, um, I believe it was like March 4th or March 19th, right in there, uh, the divorce decree was, um, was final, and I went to a place called the Varsity. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Varsity. It's the largest drive-in in the world, and we used to go there before the Georgia Tech football games. I went to every Georgia Tech football game from the time I was four or something up through my uh, high school years with my father. And we'd go to the varsity and get hamburgers or hot dogs or they had some special things. Chili dog was really good. But uh, I went over there one night and I got drunk for the first time. And from that time on, I was, uh, hadn't quite turned 16. <clears throat> I was drunk for the next eight years or stoned. Um, in the fall, I got into the drug world and uh, of course, that was the time, if you remember, some of you, I'm sure most of you remember this, but uh, all the hippie stuff was going on, all the free love, all the, you name it, it was just all the stuff that went on during the late 60s and early 70s, and I got fully involved in it. I um, decided to go to SMU in Dallas, Texas, because I wanted to be as far away from my family as I could, because I couldn't stand what was going on. My mother, when my folks divorced, I became the man of the house. Um, I went to an Episcopal preacher that my father and his new bride, um, they started going to this church, and so I went to the Episcopal preacher for counseling, and uh, the, uh, the preacher basically said, you know, this is not your fault. You don't have to take care of all this. And I was taking care of it. I don't know if you can understand what a 15 or 16-year-old kid goes through, but when all that was dumped on me, my mother's was devastated. Her, uh, this woman was her best friend who had betrayed her, and um, I didn't know what to do with it all. So I decided I'd leave. <laughs> And so I went to SMU, which is 800 miles away from Atlanta. My mother called me every day for six weeks when I got there, and I finally had to tell her one day, you can't do this anymore. I'm not the man of the house. You can't depend on me. It devastated her. She wept over the phone. So I, um, I went through SMU, and uh, I'm a businessman at heart, and uh, I've been taught business by my father, and so I began to invest in the drug trade, and I became the uh, largest dealer on the SMU campus for a year or two. I got arrested twice and um, ended up in a lot of weird stuff. <laughs> um, I graduated in three years because I went in the summers. I wasn't a great student, but I, I just didn't want to be there. And um, 
I, I ended up taking a job with a, a wholesale supply um, plumbing company in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I moved back to, to, um, uh, to the south, to, you know, to Greensboro, six hours away from Atlanta, and began to work there and um, continued in my ways. I, uh, um, you just name it, I did it. <laughs> At that time, you named the drug, and I did it. Um, and some of them I, I sold. I, uh, I got in Greensboro, and I got involved with two or three different young ladies and had some unfortunate things happen. And uh, during the midst of that, one of the guys who was a salesman in the uh, competing plumbing company um, approached me one day, and he says, um, I've got something you might be interested in. Would you be interested in a, another business? And, and I, I said, I didn't know the come on for Amway at that time, but that's what he was doing. He was coming on to Amway. And I said, well, yeah, sure, I'd be interested in that. And at the same time, my father offered me a job in Atlanta working for a company that he had recently bought. My dad was a very prosperous businessman, and he bought a little ceramics company. At that time, uh, ceramics was sort of the new thing for, um, for putting uh, silicon chips on. And so uh, about that time, it was right in there in June, actually, of, of uh, well, I don't remember. But in June, I took the job with my father, but I kept in touch with this guy. And I went down to Atlanta and um, went to work for this company. Uh, my dad had hired a, an engineer, a ceramics engineer, who had graduated from Clemson. And um, he, uh, he was running the company, um, and my dad was just pushing the money. And so I didn't have to work with my dad directly, but, you know, we were doing that sort of dance that a son and a father sometimes do when there's issues, but you're not, there's not a really a lot of resolution. So <clears throat> um, the guy from Greensboro kept in touch with me, and he invited me to... Uh, become a part of Amway, and so I became a part of Amway, and he sent me to a guy in Atlanta called Charlie Stanley, who was an Amway distributor, and I thought it was a black preacher, and so he told me he was a preacher, and, and, he, and, I, and so I stayed away. I didn't really know exactly what to do. Um, you know, I was raised in the South as we became uh, less prejudiced, if you would. Um, there's still issues there, but I mean, it was, it was, it wasn't as bad as some of the things you see in the movies and stuff, but I still had these questions. So I stayed away and, um, finally out of desperation, if I was going to get my Amway business going, I had to go meet this guy. And so I, um, <clears throat> I went over to his house. It's where he distributed his products. And, uh, this was like in uh, July or first of August. And um, I walked in, and I'm sure all of you have seen Dr. Charles Stanley on TV one way or the other. If, you know, he, he was in touch ministries, was there for 30 years or something. But when I went in, um, I, went, I began to talk with him, and, and I was suddenly just awestruck by this guy who had peace and seemed to have purpose and had joy. I didn't have any of those things. <laughs> I'd become a, what's called a stoic. I don't know if you know what a stoic is, but a, 
it's a, it was an old Roman philosophy that you just didn't show motion, emotion at all. You didn't, you didn't do, you didn't let your insides out. And so here was this guy who was just gracious and kind and gentle and peaceful. And, and I was just stunned. I'd never met anybody like that. And so, um, I, I, uh, went, I decided I had to go to his church to see what he was telling. I'd been in churches before. I'd been grown, raised in the church, but I hadn't been in about eight or nine years. And I went to a Baptist church one time in a little town called Tallahassee, Alabama, where our lake house is, with a girl I was dating. So I didn't really know anything about Baptist churches. So I go down there on Sunday night, and he's preaching about um, emotions and how God uses our emotions to get a hold of us. And specifically, uh, if you don't get right with God, he's going to put you on a shelf in your life. You'll go through life, but you won't have any value or use for eternity. You, you know, the purpose of your life will be squandered in one sense. And I was, I was struck by that. And, um, they had an invitation at the end, and I'd, I didn't know what to do, so I went down to the front, and they, the, the sanctuary there is, the front of the sanctuary is as wide from wall to wall here. And so I went over in a corner and started, I just knelt down. I didn't know what to do. I was, I was weeping and, and, uh, and nobody came and talked to me. So I finally got up and left and, <clears throat> and I, that was enough. I couldn't do that again. That was, so I waited two weeks and my mom and I talked and she said, why don't we go down there together? What I didn't know at that time was my mother had actually been a member of First Baptist Church. And that's where she'd first professed Christ when she was a child. And then when my folks got, divorced, uh, got married, they went to Peachtree Christian Church. So we went back down there, and um, they sang Amazing Grace that night. And I, uh, I, I didn't understand that song. I didn't understand God's grace. And they, um, he, he, he basically preached, he used characters out of the Old Testament, and he used, I believe that night it was Joseph and how he had, uh, determined that he would follow God regardless. And um, boy, that struck me. And I was back down at the altar again, weeping. No one spoke to me. I don't know. God just kept them off. You know, and I, I was just torn up. What do you do? So in the midst of all this, um, this Amway thing is going on in the background. And I go to Charlotte, North Carolina for an Amway convention. And uh, the guy who ran the Amway convention, I had no idea, was a Christian. And so his name was Dexter Yeager, and he had set up a, 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 a convention in the Charlotte Coliseum. And inside the Coliseum was about fourteen or 15,000 people. And then in a, an adjoining room with a big screen TV set up back then um, was another... Uh, three or four thousand people. So it was roughly twenty thousand people that had come to this thing. That's how big his organization was. And so I sat down on the front. I walked in about eight or nine o'clock because I'd driven up after work on Friday, and I got in about eight or nine o'clock. And there was a guy named Harold Hill who was at the other end. I walked into the back, and he was way down at the other end, and he was standing there with his hands like this. He had a blue suit on. I remember that, and he was weaving back and forth like this. He had a flat top, gray flat top, and he was old. <laughs> he was old. And uh, he, he started, he was given his testimony about how he had invented some, something, uh, 
and he made literally $100 million. And when he made all that money, he lost his family because his wife and, and his daughter ended up becoming drug addicts and alcoholics, and he himself became an alcoholic. And his family went to pot, and, um, and then God got a hold of him. And when God got a hold of him, excuse me, uh, suddenly things changed. He and his wife made up, and then uh, when, his, when they got right, his daughter had been put into a mental institution because of her drug addiction, and um, they began to uh, witness her, and she got saved. And uh, he wrote a book, you might still be able to find it somewhere, it's called Living Like a King's Kid. And uh, I just went, whoa. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm still in the middle of the drugs, still in the middle of all the stuff that you do um, in the hippie era and all that. And here's this guy who's talking to me about drugs and alcohol and abuse and sex and all that kind of stuff up on this platform at an Amway convention. And I'm going, whoa. So uh, I, I, I didn't know what to do with that. I don't remember who the next guy was, but they had a series of people come up that gave their testimony, one right after the other. One of them was a guy named Bob Harrington who called himself the chaplain of Bourbon Street. And he said something I'd never heard before. He says, it's fun being saved. And I went, fun? I thought being a Christian was, you know, you go in and you go out. That's it. You don't want to go into the church and leave me alone after that. And he said, no, man, it's fun being saved. He's from New Orleans. He used to be down on Bourbon Street. And I was amazed. And then he, they had a little short guy come up. His name was Zig Ziglar. I don't know if you ever remember Zig Ziglar, but one of the great motivational speakers of all time. He, at that time, he was a, a, a Sunday school teacher at First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. And he gave his testimony and then started talking about what God had done and talked about all his sales stuff and all that. And I'm going, good night, this guy's on. They had one guy who had gotten uh, caught in a in the Second World War and was put into a German, or excuse me, a Russian POW camp. And after the war, they didn't let him out. He was there 17 years before he got out. But through it all, God kept him. So I'm hearing all this stuff. That when we it went till two o'clock that night, then the next morning we started at nine, it went till about one or two of that night. And then on Sunday morning, we get up and we go back in for a church service. Never been to a church service with 20,000 people. And we go into the church service, and um, a guy named Pat Boone gave the sermon. And I had, uh, I knew who Pat Boone was. You probably know who Pat Boone is. But I didn't know he's a Christian. And he started giving his testimony and telling what God had done in his life. And, and I'm just sort of going, whoa, this is something else. And at the end of it, a guy named John Hall, who I've never met, I only saw him that one time, but he was... He was Dexter Yeager's pastor at an Assembly of God church there in, in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. And he stood up and gave an invitation, and I gave my heart to Christ. <laughs> that was uh, September 19th, 1976, almost 50 years ago. I drove home, and as I was driving home, 
It was a six-hour drive. And we, we didn't have Interstate 85 then, so that's how long ago that was. Just, you know, now we have interstates everywhere. But on the way home, God reminded me of what had happened to me at Camp Mondam in, 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 uh, in North Carolina. And he said, I've called you to be a preacher. <laughs> I went, you got to be kidding. <laughs> I mean, we literally argued all the way back to Atlanta. I said, no way. I mean, what kind of life have I lived? How could I possibly be a, a preacher? So um, I went down to First Baptist Church. I didn't know what else to do. I, I called my, uh, uh, I said, I got home that night and I called my mother and my father and I said, I'm going to join First Baptist Church in Atlanta. My dad had no clue. My mother was going, what? So I go down on Sunday night, the September 19th, and I joined First Baptist Church. And you got to realize I'm a complete heathen who just got saved, and I didn't know squat about church or anything else. So I went um, to the guy. They, they hand you off to deacons when you go down to the front at the end of the service and the invitation. So they hand me off. This guy's name was Ray Walker. I said, what do I do? And he goes, well, why don't you come back next Sunday and come to my Sunday school class? And I said, what kind of Sunday school class? What is that? And he says, well, it's a singles class. And I said, oh, okay, so I'm single. I'll come there. So I come back, and I get to know Ray and Sarah Walker. They ran the singles class. There was about 30 of us when I started. And um, they became my mentors. And they had a, um, a nephew. His name was... Uh, um, Joe Jaton, who had uh, surrendered his life to the ministry. And so the next week, I get together with Joe Jaton on a Friday, and we spend five hours talking about God and about the ministry and about what God has for you. And I'd never had any kind of fellowship like that or interaction in, in the spirit like that. And it was, it was amazing. And um, it was out of that that I began to okay, now what do I do? I, I didn't know what a seminary was. Um, I didn't know what Bible college was or anything like that. And uh, so I, I went, okay, um, I, I guess that's my next step. I don't know. Well, then I found out that you couldn't go to Southwestern Seminary unless you'd been a Christian a year, and I got saved September 19th. So that threw me off. I would have to be two years. And um, so I was thinking about all that and trying to figure it out, and a friend of mine invited me to go hear a man named Joseph Carroll, who was a, an Australian evangelist at a little church in Atlanta. And so I go to hear this guy, and, and after a couple, three times of going, he would show up once a month on Friday nights, and I, he was amazing. I just couldn't, I was digging into this, and my heart was being filled up. And so I, I finally went up to him one day, and I said, what, uh, I understand you run a Bible school. Should I go there, and you know, what, what do you teach? And, I mean, you got to realize I'm, I don't know anything, so I'm trying to figure it all out. And so um, I end up going to, a, it's called the Evangelical Institute in Greenville, South Carolina. It's still in existence today. He's, he's long since died, but um, uh, it's run by the men that he discipled and ministered. They don't have formal degrees, but it's it's a, uh, it was a wonderful Bible school in, in many instances. And out of that, I ended up going to... Um, as a result, I spent two years there. It was very missions-oriented, so I went with 
uh, from there to Operation Mobilization in, in, um, in England. Well, first I went to Austria, and then I ended up in England, spent two years uh, over there, and then came back and went to uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. So now in the midst of all that, um, I had prayed, you know, Lord, uh, <clears throat> I wasn't a very, well, I certainly wasn't a godly man before I got saved. And I didn't know anything about being a godly man after I got saved, so it took me a while. And I said, Lord, make me a godly man before you bring me a godly wife. And uh, I need a wife, but uh, if you do that, I'd appreciate it, Lord. So I thought, you know, a year, two years, three years, oh, no, four years, <laughs> five years. Seven years later, while I'm at Dallas Seminary, my second year, I, um, I'm in, in a missionary prayer group with a redhead. Um, I have an, aff I have an uh, affection for redheads. And um, so we started talking, and she, she wanted to go to the mission field, and I wanted to go to the mission field. I felt like that was where God was leading us. And so we began a, sort of a dating process. I asked her to come and help me with the evangelistic film ministry we were doing at our church. On, uh, she went to another church, all inner city churches. And she went to another one. She brought a bunch of kids. And then she left that night. And uh, I thought, well, dog, that didn't work out very well. But a little while later, she comes back. And we, um, we go to a place called Coco's. And we closed the place down drinking hot chocolate. And that was in um, the first of March. And I asked her to marry me in August. I'm 31 and she's 27. And uh, we, that was 39 years ago. So we just celebrated our 39th. So I'm not sure why God had me share that today, but but... God has been faithful to me for almost 50 years now. Uh, September 19, 1976 was when I got saved, and uh, it, I've been saved 47 and a half years. He's met every need we've had. When I pastored my first church, um, I'll just tell you the figures. They, they, uh, I was willing to go anywhere. God, you show me where you want me to go, and I'll go. And he, he opened this door up for us to go to a little town called Burley, Idaho. And I thought we were supposed to go to the mission field. So I was thinking we'd gone and interviewed with both the conservative Baptists and the Southern Baptists um, and Greater Europe missions to go to, to the mission field. And it was just like God would close the doors. He was just closing the doors. And uh, all of a sudden, this church opens up in Burley, Idaho. And I didn't know anything about Idaho. I didn't know, I'd never been to Idaho. And uh, so they call us and we go up in what's in Baptist world, it's in view of a call. And we go up and um, they pick us up in Salt Lake and drive us up and they take us, the gal, or Marty Bedke was her name. She's my pianist for eight years. But um, she picks us up and takes us to Brigham City, Utah, and takes us to a restaurant there and we walk into the restaurant, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but literally everybody in the restaurant turned around and looked at us and it got quiet. Small town, Mormon town, and we were strangers. And I asked, you know, we ate, it was uncomfortable the whole time. 
And when we got out, I said, what is going on there? And she goes, it's Mormonism. And I said, oh. And she said, and Burley's 70% Mormon. You need to understand what you're getting into, basically. <laughs> so uh, they call us and we go to uh, Burley, Idaho, and they give us $20,000 a year. And I had three children at that time, or two children at that time. And um, we barely made it the whole time we were there for eight years. There was, there was two weeks in a month sometimes when we had no money. But God was faithful. God always took care of us. God always met our needs. My kids never had want. They never didn't have clothes on their back. They never didn't have shoes on their feet. They never did not have food on the table. It was extremely stressful at times. Working with Mormons was very, very difficult. I burned out. I ended up in a counseling office. And uh, God was faithful, got me through that. Church didn't know what to do with me when I came back from that. I went on a sort of sabbatical trying to get myself together. And um, when I came back, the church it didn't know what to do with me, and so for about two years, we did this odd dance, and finally, we felt like God was saying, it's time to leave, and I thought I was getting out of the pastorate, so we moved back to a, a house that my mother owned in North Carolina, and um, stayed there for five months, and then God called me to uh, First Baptist of Pembroke, Georgia, and uh, a little town as well in Bryan County, Georgia, 30 miles west of Savannah, and... Um, in the Delta is real flat. My wife loves the mountains. She likes to be able to see. Um, it's the only time in our marriage I saw my wife get depressed because she couldn't see across the street. There were so many pine trees. I mean, it was, it was amazing. But it was a great church. It was God's healing church. God gave me two years of just, of, uh, just having a ball. I had uh, eight deacons, and I called them the young bucks because the oldest one was... 70, but the rest of them were 40 or younger. And um, anything we decided to do, they did. And the church exploded. We, 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 um, we were the 113th fastest growing church in, in Georgia out of 3,500 churches. I mean, we had a revival. We had a guy named Bill Say come and he preached. And we had people, there were so many people in the church, we put them all the way around up on the stage, because we didn't have anywhere to put them, 75 people got saved. It was amazing. God was just anointing all that. But in the midst of it, he kept talking to me about going back to the Northwest. And my wife was struggling. And so we eventually contacted some people here that I'd had relationships with in Idaho. And uh, I ended up at Canyon Ferry Road Baptist Church. I was there 17 years, and um, that was not all easy either. <laughs> I wish all churches would be like Pembroke was for 25 years. That doesn't happen. <laughs> but God blessed at Canyon Ferry. We, second, third year I was there, we built the two-story um, education building out there. But by the time I left, we were struggling to make budget. Lots of things happened. I wasn't planning on saying any of this this morning. This was not my sermon for this morning. I wanted to start the I Am's of John. 
But God, I believe, wanted me to share with you his faithfulness to me over all these years and what God has done. He, he is good. <laughs> He's a good, good father. That's what kicked it off. And uh, even though my father really let us down, I love my dad. Please don't misunderstand me. He's dead. He died in 2014. Um, my mother died in 2004 uh, from a botched um, rotocuff surgery. And uh, I, I cried every day for six months. And then every week. <laughs> and then every month. <laughs> it was like a two or three year uh, mourning time. But when my father died, because of all the hurt, and because of all the pain, and because of the uncertainty of what he's left behind, and all that, I, hard, I hardly shed a tear. And that, that's, to me, has been weird. But God has been my father. God has been the one uh, that I've depended on, who has helped me, and who's walked me through so many things. He's a good, good father. He's worthy of, of all of our attention. He's worthy of all of our loyalty. He's worthy of all of our submission. He's worthy of all our love because he is good. And he gave his son for us. And nothing, nothing can take the place of that. So, uh, Lord bless you. Let's pray for a second. Oh. Father, thank you that you are a good father. That you love us more than we love ourselves. More than we can even imagine. And Father, I've, uh, I, I am so excited about the future because the future is with you. The future is in your presence. The future is in perfection where there will be no more hurt or pain or sorrow or sin. And so, Lord, I, I thank you that we can look forward to that, that we can uh, just joy in you and in what you uh, want to do and what you have for us. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who has never met you, has never said yes to you as their Savior, I pray that they might just pray this simple prayer, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and to, to Lord, to have mercy on me and to draw me into relationship with you. God, I, I have known throughout the years now that when people pray that prayer in sincerity, that you bring about an avalanche of change in their life for good. And so, God, I pray that you would do that this morning if there's anybody here who doesn't know you. God, I ask that you would bless this church. I've prayed for them relentlessly this last year and a half. And I ask that you would bless them 
I pray that you would grow this church. I pray that you would bless this church. And I pray that you would use this church for your, for your glory and for their good. So thank you for them. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity. Bless them now. Give us all a great day. We pray the Grizz would win. In Jesus' name, amen.